Courtney Nesbitt was 16 years old and full of life on the afternoon of Monday, April 22, 1974. After school, he'd gone to the Ogden Municipal Airport to complete another of his many flying lessons. He was always early to his lessons. He loved to fly. While he waited for his instructor, he walked among the rows of light private airplanes with their wings and tails anchored by drooping chains. He could hear the high-pitched engines of small planes taxiing down the runway, then the receding drone as they lifted off, gained altitude, and disappeared in the distance. The planes would become silent specks against northern Utah's Wasatch Mountains. Courtney was nearly six feet tall and handsome like his father Byron, who was a local OBGYN. He was intelligent and enthusiastic. Life had been good to him in his short 16 years on Earth. On this warm afternoon in early spring of 74, he walked over to the small Cessna building at the airport around 4.30 p.m. It was time for his flying lesson. His instructor, Wolfgang Lang, was waiting for him. He asked Courtney if he had any questions before they took off on their flight. Courtney confidently said, nope, let's go fly. They left the office and walked down a row of parked planes until they came to a red and white Cessna 150 Skyhawk. They took off in the plane and made a few rotations around the airport. Courtney had the controls, but Wolfgang was still in the plane with him. The instructor knew that Courtney was now ready to fly on his own. That afternoon, while all was right with the world, Courtney would make his first solo flight. They landed the plane and Wolfgang grabbed the radio mic next to Courtney. Ogden Control, this is Wolf. I've got a first solo here, so give him a little room, okay? Wolfgang replaced the mic and looked at Courtney. Now I want you to go back up. I'm going to get out of the plane. Wolf stepped out of the plane and signaled to Courtney that he was a safe distance from the propeller. Courtney mentally checked off the oil level, the gas drain to rid the fuel of water, the primer to pump the fuel directly to the cylinders. Clear, he yelled out the window. Ogden Tower, this is Cessna 092, ready for takeoff. Courtney eased up on the throttle. The plane moved forward, gaining speed until it was hurtling toward the end of the runway. Courtney reached down by his right knee and spun the trim wheel to raise the nose, but only slightly, as Wolfgang had warned him. Then the wheels sprang from the runway and he was climbing, angled toward the sky. Courtney gained altitude rising over the freeway, over the city, and he felt free. Only slightly nervous, but completely in control of life. Little did he know that in only a few short hours, his life and the lives of several others would be changed simply by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. He would be forced into a situation not of his own choosing, and this recently found freedom would be taken from him. This is Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West, The Ogden Hi-Fi Murders, Part 1. What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? After finishing his Monday afternoon flying lesson, Courtney was just about to leave Ogden Airport when a call came in on the office phone at the Cessna building. It was from his older brother, Gary. Gary asked him how his flying lesson went, and Courtney was on cloud nine. Three days prior, their mother and father, Carol and Byron Nesbitt, had returned from a two-week trip to Hong Kong where they had taken dozens of photos. The rolls of film had been dropped off at Inkley's, a photo development shop on Washington Boulevard in downtown Ogden. 
Gary asked Courtney if he'd be willing to stop by Inkley's and pick up the developed photos on his way home. Courtney agreed but was reluctant. He knew that only in a few hours, at 7 p.m. that night, he had to make it to his ground school class, part of his flight instruction, and he wanted to make it home in time to have dinner and get ready. Gary thanked Courtney on the phone for saving him a trip and said that he could either park at the bank near Inkley's and they would validate his parking, or he could park behind the nearby Hi-Fi shop at 2323 Washington Boulevard as their cousin Brent Richardson owned the Hi-Fi shop. Brent was only 25 years old and loved to tinker with electronics. He was ambitious and a young entrepreneur who had started his first business storing boats and RVs while he was still in high school. After graduating from Ogden High, which was the first high school in Utah to cost more than $1 million to build when it was constructed in the late 1930s, Brent went on to be a Green Beret in the Special Forces of the military and attended Weber State University. Just an added tidbit. Ogden High served as the filming location for 1987's Three O'Clock High, a film about a boy who attracts the attention of the school bully by being in the wrong place at the wrong time and eventually fights the bully after school while the whole student body is watching. While attending Weber State, Brent purchased the hi-fi shop and was very dedicated to its success. He would often travel the West for business deals and to meet with other store owners to learn the craft of building a business. On Monday, April 22nd of 74, Brent was out of town in San Francisco on business. 20-year-old Stanley Walker was working at the shop that day, filling in as interim manager for Brent while he was away. Courtney got in his car and left the airport, heading for downtown Ogden. He decided to park behind the hi-fi shop as he knew that Brent wouldn't mind if he parked there and then he wouldn't have to deal with getting a parking validation from the bank. The shop was still open when he arrived and it was business as usual. He pulled up in the parking alley behind the shop and brought his car to a stop. He got out and before walking to Inkley's to pick up his photos, he decided to knock on the back door of the hi-fi shop and say a quick hello to the employees, letting them know that he would leave his car there for a few minutes. Stanley Walker opened the door and the two knew each other. Stanley said, sure, you can park here. I know Brent wouldn't mind in the least. Courtney thanked Stan and he glanced down the hall into the shop and saw 18-year-old Michelle Ainsley. Michelle had beautiful flowing brunette hair and a nice figure. Courtney thought she was glowing that day as he waved to her. She likely was. She had been proposed to and accepted the proposal the night before from her longtime boyfriend. The two planned on getting married on August 5th, only a few months away. Michelle had been hired at the hi-fi shop only a week before and planned on working and saving up some money for her upcoming wedding. She was kind and full of life and thankful for her new job. Courtney again thanked Stan and said he would only be a few minutes and then he'd be back to grab his car after he picked up the photos down the street. Stan said, great, see you then. As he left and walked down Washington Boulevard in the late afternoon sun, the shadows from the buildings were growing more defined as the sun got lower in the west and would soon set beyond the Great Salt Lake. As he was crossing the crosswalk that led to Inkley's, Courtney bumped into his lifelong friend, Cora Beth Baggs, who had grown up in the same neighborhood as the Nesbitts on the East Bench in Ogden. At first, he hadn't recognized her, but when she got closer, he realized it was his childhood friend. He hadn't seen her for several years. Cora Beth would later say that Courtney had relayed to her that he completed his first solo flight that afternoon. She said he was beaming from ear to ear. He asked her where she was headed, 
and she said she was going to Inkley's to pick up some photos as well, so the two went to the store together. In Inkley's, Courtney charged the pictures to his parents' account, and the clerk handed him a large sack of colored photos and slides. As they left Inkley's, Cora Beth asked him where he was headed next. He said he had parked at the Hi-Fi shop, so he was going back there to get his car. She agreed to walk back toward the shop with him as she was enjoying his company, and truth be told, she had a crush on Brent Richardson and was hoping to see him there. She said she really should be getting home because her parents had been getting on her case lately about coming home late, but she wanted to say hi to Brent back at the shop. She asked Courtney if he knew whether Brent was in the shop or not, and Courtney related to her that he was out of town. Cora Beth then said, well, I guess I should be getting home then. And she said goodbye and left Courtney before he got back to the shop. She had parked in the parking alcove behind House of Fabrics, a few doors down from the hi-fi shop. Courtney walked the half block to the shop and wanted to go in and thank Stan and Michelle again for letting him park there. He swung open the glass door to the shop and walked in. The hi-fi shop was a narrow store and had the glass door entrance from Washington Boulevard on one side and on the other end, down a narrow corridor, was the back door entrance that led to the parking alcove where he had left his car. Courtney thought the shop seemed extremely quiet, which was even more pronounced to him after having left the hustle and bustle of Washington Boulevard moments before. Closing time on Mondays was 6 o'clock, and around this time Stan and Michelle should have been turning off their equipment, cleaning up the records and putting them back in the jackets, and ringing up the day's receipts on the cash register. No one was in the front of the store at all. Courtney resolved that the store's employees had either gone out to complete a quick errand before closing or were possibly downstairs wrapping up their day in the stockroom or utility room. He continued down the narrow hallway that led to the back door. As he was about halfway to the door, Courtney could see Stan in the sound room, the last room before the door to the back alley. Thanks for letting me park behind the store, Stan, he yelled. He continued on and grabbed the handle to the back door, turning it to head out into the back alley. Stan yelled for him to stop. He's going to shoot you, he said. To his left, Courtney heard a voice that chilled him. Take another step and I'll put a bullet in you. He stopped and turned, and there in the darkness, leading down to the stairs, stood a tall black man. Courtney stopped abruptly and put his hands up, dropping the slides and photos on the floor. Before he knew it, Courtney was being pushed and kicked down the stairs into the basement. Another man was waiting downstairs. This man was also an African-American but was much shorter, not more than five and a half feet tall, but very muscular. He pulled Courtney's hands behind him and tied them together with speaker wire. Then he bound his feet. The basement of the hi-fi shop had green shag carpeting, and Courtney had been down there several times. There were three walls painted eggshell white, and the fourth wall was a sliding wood panel that led to a workshop and storage area. Stan was thrown into the basement as well and tied up in much the same manner that Courtney was. The two lay on the floor, sweat beating down their foreheads from fear. Stan was a tall, slender 20-year-old and was dressed in a plaid flannel shirt with his sleeves rolled up. He always reminded Brent of a jolly lumberjack. He, just like Brent, had a genius for electronics and sound systems, and was very affable and conversational with customers. The previous Friday night, the Hi-Fi shop had sponsored a dance at Ben Lomond High School, and Stan had been the disc jockey. Brent had helped him set up the sound equipment, and Michelle, who had only worked at the shop a handful of days, accompanied them to the dance as well. 
Brent would later say that Michelle pulled him onto the dance floor that night as they were setting up and testing out the sound system to the sounds of Jethro Tull. Even though Michelle had been dating someone for many months, she was a flirt, and Brent liked having her in the store because, as he said, bright, pretty girls were good for business. Michelle was thrown onto the floor in the basement as well, and her hands and feet were bound in similar fashion to Courtney's and Stan's. The three were being watched after downstairs by the taller of the two black men who held a 38 caliber revolver on them. They could hear the other, shorter man upstairs rummaging around and carrying stereo equipment out into the back alley. One of the times he opened the door, the voice of a third man could be heard from the back alley as well, indicating that there were, at the very least, three men in on this robbery. Michelle, Stan, and Courtney lay on the floor, hoping this was only going to be a robbery and wouldn't escalate into something more, but they couldn't be sure. After a while, over an hour had passed since closing, and the parents of the three young people being held captive in the basement of the hi-fi shop began to wonder where they were. Conversations were being had in these homes scattered across Ogden, and plans were being made to search for the captives. Their parents had no way of knowing just how bad and how dire things actually were in the dark basement of the hi-fi shop in Washington Boulevard, just blocks from the Ogden LDS Temple, which had been dedicated only two years prior and lit the night sky. The interesting thing about that night was the juxtaposition of darkness and light, the trading of places with the players in the scenario of the evening, which would soon escalate and get out of hand. Why hadn't Brent Richardson been there on that fateful night? Why was Stanley Walker working his shift instead? Why was Michelle Ainsley lying tied up on the green carpeted floor just one night after being proposed to by the love of her life? Why was Courtney, who'd flown so high in the skies above Ogden only hours before, now laying on the floor in the depths of despair? There were so many coincidences that night which caused so much pain. Some more of them will be mentioned in the next episode. More players in this dastardly play would show up and enter the scene. Reminiscent of Don McLean's 1971 hit song American Pie about trading fates in which he sang out about the day the music died, when on February 3, 1959, after a concert in Clear Lake, Iowa, Buddy Holly decided to charter a plane for himself, guitarist Tommy Alsup, and Waylon Jennings, also in the band, so they could fly to Fargo, North Dakota instead of taking the long, frozen bus trip across the Midwest. The big bopper, who was suffering from the flu, asked Jennings for his seat on the plane, and Richie Valens asked the same of Alsop. When Jennings told Hawley that he was going to take the bus, Hawley jokingly told him he hoped the bus broke down, to which Jennings replied, I hope your old plane crashes. J.P. Richardson, also known as the big bopper, Richie Valens, and Buddy Hawley were all killed as the plane crashed only moments later. Another case of trading fates and being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Javier Bardem's character Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men asks a gas station proprietor whose life hung in the balance, what's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? What's the most you ever lost on a coin toss? Sir? The most you ever lost on a coin toss. I don't know. I couldn't say. Call it. Call it, yes. For what? Just call it. 
know what we're calling it for here. You need to call it. I can't call it for you. Well, it wouldn't be fair. I didn't put nothing up. Yes, you did. You've been putting it up your whole life. You just didn't know it. In that conversation with the gas station owner that Anton Chigurh had just barely met, he elaborates on the bets and chances we all take in life, many of which we don't even know we're taking. Lives would collide in that basement on that fateful night in Ogden, Utah in late April 1974, and undeserving consequences would be dished out. I'm Chad Mortensen. Join me next time as we continue the story of the Ogden Hi-Fi murders on Saints and Sinners, True Crime, and the History of the West. Mm -hmm.